Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. We heard this week that the war in Ukraine could herald an energy and food crisis as supply and sanctions are used more and more as a tool of modern warfare. But even before the war, supply chains were heavily compromised. Everything from car parts to coffee cups became precious commodities. Today, we're going to look at the underlying supply problems and and how companies can protect themselves against future supply shocks. And in the world of work, we're going to look at how our world has changed as individuals. Because although technology was supposed to make us work less, it seems like we feel at least that we're working much more and much harder. We'll be examining the real pressure that we continue to put ourselves under to deliver at all times. And finally, I'll be joined in studio by CEO of IBEC, Danny McCoy, to find out where he thinks the Irish economy sits in June 2022. And I'll be asking him what the Irish business sector expect from government as they struggle to deal with inflation, housing, the energy crisis, not to mention the political shenanigans that are about to start ahead of Budget 2023. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. Now, whether you're in business or just trying to get through life, it's likely that in the last year you've had some supply issues, whether it's car parts to coffee cups. The supply chain blues have hit everyone at one point or another. But why are the supply chains so broken? Joining me now to discuss is Eric Sherman, who's an independent journalist who's been writing about this issue for Forbes magazine. Thank you for joining us today. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Well, thanks for having me on. Now, Eric, we're all very familiar with the scenes of the clogged ports from around the world, whether it's Shanghai or the US, but they're almost the apex uh, of the problem of the supply chain, aren't they? There's plenty of underlying problems that lie beneath the surface. Can you take us through some of them? Uh, Certainly. Uh, One basic problem is that uh, for about 30 years, experts in supply chains have been warning companies that the way they approached it Uh, with the way they approached running their supply chains, had a basic flaw to it. Uh, Many companies decided, oh, they would uh, cut back on inventory, they would uh, do just-in-time deliveries, uh, which meant parts would show up literally as they were needed, uh, because it let them lower uh, expenses. They didn't have to put as much money into inventories at any given time. So it made their uh, balance sheets look better. Is this the lean and just-in-time model? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the lean and just-in-time model uh, taken to a foolish extreme. Mm. There's there's nothing wrong with trying to reduce inventory because you want to free up cash to do other things. But you can put yourself on the edge and run into potential problems. If Mm. something goes wrong, suddenly boom, there you are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the, the other thing that um, I, I've been looking at is the the tendency for um, large corporations to be very good at having some sort of peripheral vision built into their company strategy. But that's not always possible for smaller businesses who are kind of just focused on getting from one week to the next. But do you think that if, if we could develop a, a, a more regular process of 
having a peripheral vision uh, for smaller businesses, that that would help them? Um, Yes and no. I mean, there is technology that allows companies to collaborate, allows them to uh, swap information, which would be an ideal thing to do uh, for supply chains. You want to know if somebody you're doing business with, either uh, in a uh, supplier or someone, uh, a distributor for you, is having problems. Maybe they have uh, something happen with the facility. Maybe they're backed up for some reason or another. And you need to know that. Hmm. But companies haven't done that. Even large companies, many large companies, have very little insight into their supply chains. And they might know something from their direct suppliers, but you need to know further down. A, um, a direct supplier could be held up because they can't get some small plastic part that goes into their product. Yeah. And then the other thing um, that they they might do is have a small number of vendors or suppliers for themselves. So if you're in that situation, you've got a small number of suppliers and then the commodity becomes uh, unavailable or, um, you know, it's in high demand. The capacity for you to replace that vendor becomes more difficult. So how important is diversification? Extremely important. Uh, uh, There was a great example back uh, in the tsunami that hit Japan years ago. One of the factories that was put out of commission made uh, certain types of materials that were used in semiconductors. Mm. That factory made about 80% of the global supply. And so suddenly, a lot of semiconductor manufacturers looked around. They said, we can't make our products because we can't get this one material in. Just one material affected. Right. When um, something like that happens and one factory can really severely affect an entire industry, what tends to happen? Do people start to stockpile then? Uh, Some might for the future, but then you get back to this whole uh, concept of uh, thinking that you, they want to run very uh, lean inventories because they want their, their balance sheets to look better. And so you don't, they don't really learn. And you have mm. a second problem here too. It's not just uh, a company not having a sufficient number of alternate suppliers, but it's consolidation within industries. And so in certain places, you may not have that many uh, companies that can provide the service, that can provide the materials, mm. uh, that can provide the products. And so, you know, where do you turn? There may not, there may not be an option. Now, one thing that the supply chain issues has definitely highlighted is that globalization, um, the access to cheaper product available from faraway destinations has certainly been a trend for many, many businesses the world over. Do you think that there's a more um, heightened awareness now of the attractiveness of having your suppliers nearer to home? I think there's talk of it. Um, I think it's maybe starting to take hold, mm. but it, it'll take uh, it'll take a long time because, again, what happens is that uh, – Experience gets lost. Uh, executives leave. The people in in, uh, in charge of supply chain or in charge of uh, uh, purchasing, they'll go on to someplace else. New people will come in, and they'll you start the same cycle of oh, let's make things look lean and good on the books again. Mm. And you know, and th- th- that's uh, that's a problem. Even back, uh, I remember in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there were experts uh, who were 
uh, you know, consulting to large companies and trying to tell them well, you can offshore as much manufacturing as you want and you may be saving some money, but you now have actually built in even higher inventories because of the amount of products you have on ships in process that can't be sold. If anything changes for the needs of your customers, you can't react fast enough. Uh, it, so there's a lot to be said for having uh, at least alternative uh, ways of manufacturing and of assembling products close to hand yes. and close to your customers. And Eric, for a moment, let's look at that transportation issue and getting product from one part to the other because it is a really important part of the supply chain process. Can you take us through some of the issues uh, that might lie behind the 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 pictures that we see of uh, trailers backing up outside of ports or ships you know, backing up at, at big harbours. What are the difficulties that lie beneath the surface there? Well, uh, some is that the ports don't hire enough people. And simple, so... Simple, simple, simple. <laughs> really, uh, to do paperwork. Yes. You, know, you have trucks coming in at a certain point of the day, if, if they haven't hired enough people to run overnight shifts, to run late shifts, uh, the people in charge say, okay, that's it, I'm going home, it's the end mm. of my day, and trucks can be sent back and told to come the next day. Uh, the, uh, the ocean shippers, there are three major alliances of uh, different shippers, and they cover about 80% of the global container market. That in itself draws attention to the fact that there's so few companies who have a monopoly on this market. Right. It's uh, I, I mean, and again, there are more companies than three, but it's three alliances. And those alliances noticed that during uh, during the pandemic, there was such a demand for products coming out of Asia to try to restart things that the, the rates they could get for shipping out of Asia were much higher than they could get from shipping, say, out of North America, out mm. of Europe. And so what they did was they sent all these empty containers over to Asia to fill them up. But the empty containers are also needed in other countries so they can go on, on uh, rail, so they can take products into the countries, pick up products within the countries, bring them back out to the ports. And so when you when there weren't uh, those containers available for shipping via uh, train, then what happens is companies had to start hiring trucks. And the trucks, there were only so many of them and not enough drivers. And so they were having to uh, haul everything by truck rather than train, which is much more efficient often. And again, compiling the problems. Mm. Do you think that COVID-19 um, and now the war in Ukraine have demonstrated just how ill-prepared uh, not just business but major governments uh, are when it comes to um, contingency planning? Because I'm just thinking of things like the PPE equipment for hospitals all over the world, the energy shortage now uh, all over Europe mm -hmm. uh, and now food because of the war in Ukraine. Do you think that there's been a jolt to the system to make people more aware and are you surprised that maybe nations were less prepared than they should be for big emergency issues like this? Um, I think there's been a jolt. How long that will last? Mm. I don't have great hopes. 
And no, I'm not surprised that nations weren't ready because politicians don't think about these things. Uh, they think largely about getting reelected and uh, they have a short-term view of the world and what they need to do to keep themselves uh, in power, in office. And you know, some of these things, some of these ideas of contingency planning, being prepared, it costs money. It doesn't seem to have an obvious payoff right away. And so a lot of the people, a lot of voters will say, no, no, we don't want to hear this. Uh, cut our taxes or do this or do that and uh, don't bother. And you know, to some degree, I have sympathy for the politicians because – you say, what can they do? Yeah. Well, speaking of what can you do, do you have any advice for, um, first of all, businesses uh, and how they might try to try and start safeguarding themselves against future supply shocks? Well, one is to start building a robust uh, supply chain that doesn't that isn't completely dependent on a few players. You want diversity. You want to be able to move in another direction. When you need to, there are, I mean, there are great advantages to having fewer suppliers. It's much easier control, to control, but it's a mistake in the long run. So you want variety, not just among different companies, but geographically. Mm. If something happens in one part of the world, you need to be able to bring products in from somewhere. Where would you bring them in from? Well, yeah. you know, maybe it's South America, maybe it's North America, maybe it's Europe, Asia, you know, who knows? But they have to come in from someplace. And also uh, individual companies and entire industries need to think about creating resilient ways of doing business where they are. Uh, are you going to depend completely on outsourcing and uh, offshoring all your manufacturing? It's, it's a mistake. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't do anything. You could do quite a bit, but you need to be able – to have ways to uh, reply to shock and to reply to uh, troubling circumstances. For sure. And I really think a risk analysis is a must for every business or company, no matter how big or small it is worth doing every six months, just sitting down and looking at the risks of supply, even if you're not in production. Uh, but it's something that I think should be definitely built into to every sort of business model. So, um, Eric, from a consumer point of view, then, is there anything we can do as consumers to stop or guard ourselves against shocks like this, to stop us panic buying toilet rolls when the next uh, supply issue hits us? Uh, I'm not sure that will happen. Yet people get worried, and rightfully so. And say with the toilet paper shortage, right? Mm. You saw how long it went on. Mm. And it went on that long because a lot of producers had shut down and uh, it's not easy to retool an entire factory to do a different variation on a product. So the ones that were producing uh, commercial toilet paper for offices, for restaurants and stores, what have you, uh, they couldn't easily repackage what they were doing. Mm. So that would take months. Yeah, they can't repurpose it overnight. Yeah. Right. And they say, well, should we? Well, how long is this going to last? Are we going to retool and then suddenly find that we have to change back again? Mm. We well, say it doesn't happen often, but it happens often here in Ireland, Eric, because we've had a run on bread. We've had a run on banana bread. There's been several different commodities that we've mm -hmm. we've come very attached to. Just to to 
finish up here, Eric, do you think that uh, things are going to get any better? Do you think that we have learned as companies to deal with this uh, in a better way? Um, honestly, maybe some companies have. A lot of companies won't. Uh, they'll see things get better and they'll say, okay, we'll have, we, there, are always these, there are all these other things we need to worry about. So let's worry about that. On that, I, w- I wish I could. I wish I could say I was more positive, but just looking at the history of business and how people respond to things, uh, I don't think it's realistic. Okay, well, so there's no end in sight, but we won't shoot the messenger, Eric. And um, there's at least some useful tips there for you to look inside your own company, your own business, or your household to see how you might be able to focus on what you can control and not what you can't. For now, we leave it there. That's Eric Sherman, uh, independent journalist. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me on. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, are you working harder than ever before? Find out if your nine to five is just a dim and distant memory after the break. was of course Dolly Parton with the anthem for hard-pressed workers everywhere. Many of us find ourselves longing for a nine-to-five job nowadays. Instead, we're leaning out of the bed, grabbing our phones and finding ourselves switched on before we're even properly awake. We're certainly all working much, much harder than before, but is it making us richer or sicker? To discuss, I am joined now by Sarah O'Connor from the Financial Times, who's been writing about this issue this week. Sarah, you're very welcome to Taking Stock here on News Talk. Thank you for having me. Sarah, so technology promised to change our working world, and it's certainly done that. You've been looking at how the world of work has changed. What did you find? Yeah, so one of the really interesting trends that I think hasn't really been talked about enough is what economists call uh, work intensification. So this is this isn't really so much about the number of hours we're working in a week, um, but it's about how hard we're working when we are at work, or at least how hard we feel like we're working. And what we see from, you know, a number of different studies from different countries, different occupations, is the same trend, which is since the 90s, it seems as if we are working harder, we're working faster, we're working to tighter deadlines, and more of us are saying that we feel completely used up by the end of the working day. And things were supposed to be so much different with the advancements in technology. You quoted in your article this week, Maynard Keynes, the the famous economist who said that by now we should all be working 15 hours a week because of advances in technology. Where did it all go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, it's always been the great promise, hasn't it, that um, technology would free us from the the sort of drudgery of, of work and we can uh, sort of sit back and let the robots do everything. It hasn't it hasn't really worked out that way. I mean, to be fair, we definitely work less than we used to, right? If you if you think back to the Industrial Revolution, uh, people were working 12, 13, 14 hour days, um, six days a week. So, you know, let's not let's not sort of pretend that things are worse than they've ever been. That's definitely not the case. But it's definitely true that um, the decline in the length of the working week sort of leveled off Mm. uh, a few decades ago. And so we're not our weeks aren't getting shorter. And as I say, it feels as if we're we're working harder. Uh, So, I mean, there are lots of different uh, potential explanations. I don't think anyone 
knows for sure. Um, I mean, one, I think, interesting fact is that when you asked people in the 90s, what what determines how hard you work, you know, what determines how much effort you put, put in when you're at work, they would say, you know, I do, it's my, it's my own discretion, I decide how hard to work. Um, fewer people say that these days, and more people say that they work hard because of their clients or because of their customers. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the way technology has changed, you know, with the internet and instant communication. Uh, people just feel that they have to respond faster, both to their colleagues, but also to the demands of their clients. You know, whether that's a lawyer who has to uh, you know, jump instantly on a, on an M&A deal or whether that's an Uber driver who has to uh, scurry off and deliver a hamburger to someone. Um, yeah, and that's one thing I wanted to ask okay. you about. Is this is is this something that they've found across all types of workers? So it's, 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 it's the professional services and somebody working on a production line. Does everybody feel like this? Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, one of the most interesting things is that we do pretty much see it across most different kinds of income brackets and, and occupations. So in most surveys, you'll find that um, people who earn more money and work in white collar professional jobs tend to experience this more. So they 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 feel that they work harder. But um, the biggest increases that we've seen have actually quite often been for people on lower pay uh, in more manual jobs, whether that's working in you know, warehouses or factories or as nurses or as social carers or yeah, all kinds of all kinds of different um, jobs seem to be experiencing a similar speeding up and um, an intensification of the, the demands that they're facing. And is there any sense, um, Sarah, beyond our own feelings as individual employees that maybe employers have simply cut the headcount to, to save costs without coming up with more efficient ways of doing things and that we are actually under more pressure? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, if you look, for example, at the the public sector over here in the UK, that would probably be a good example. Over the last 10 years, we've seen um, teachers and nurses and doctors um, reporting much higher stress levels and, and feelings as if they're working harder. And, you know, that makes sense, right? Because we know that the um, the public sector has been through a, a long stretch of austerity through which headcount was reduced. Um, and yet what they were expected to do wasn't. So, yeah, that's a kind of a very simple mathematical way in which in which that can happen. And certainly, you know, there are private sector companies that decide to cut costs to the bone without necessarily thinking hard about how exactly to help people do more with less. Yeah. And tell me about some of the ways in which companies are trying to ensure they get more from their staff and kind of nudging people towards keeping pace with machines and technology. Yeah, so I mean, there there are now um, sort of technological products out there that um, employers can use to try and extract more effort from people, really, I suppose. So, you know, if you think about, for example, an Amazon warehouse, uh, 10 years ago, I was inside an Amazon warehouse and it's people walking around. Um, now they're walking around from, from shelf to shelf and they are being monitored by technology, but it's still up to them really how fast they walk. What's happening now in, in those sorts of warehouses is that the the workers stand still and, and there are robots that bring the shelves to them and they bring the shelves to them you know, at a very sort of steady and and pretty rapid pace. And so, you know, that, that job has become something that is now paced by machines rather than by humans um but even in the you know in in the in the white collar sector and we saw more of this um during the pandemic when people working from home some employers um deploying software that will 
take a screenshot of a worker's screen regularly to check that they're um, working hard, measuring how many key strokes they're doing, sending little nudges if uh, they go onto Facebook when they should be in their Excel spreadsheet <laughs> or whatever. Um, so there are these sort of um, surveillance products out there now that um, certainly some employers are uh, are getting into. Yeah, and we might see that as something that's a new development. But actually, I remember on this program reviewing a book that was about the evolution of clocks and time. And in the Industrial Revolution, actually, they used clocks to, um, you know, keep sync with the pace of the work. And they would literally, if the production was slow, they would slow time down to ensure that the workers stay there for longer. So whereas we think of this data analytics might be a new development, it's actually a tactic that employers have have used for, for quite a long time. You mentioned earlier, Sarah, the 1990s and how in particular that work intensification has changed a little bit since then. There was a big phrase around the 1990s, which was sub-optimization and the kind of carving out of work programs to almost create this, you know, culture of competition within companies to drive productivity. And the structure in companies now particularly management structures, are much flatter. Do you think that that's developing a culture and work where individual people feel more responsible to deliver themselves? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there have been lots of um, fads over the years in in management culture and, you know, people trying to figure out what's the best way of doing things and the best way of getting, getting the best out of their staff. You know, there are certainly, uh, there'll be some people who are working hard now because they they love to work or because they feel that um, they want to excel, you know, sort of driven by, by, by their own um, ambitions, I suppose. And then, you know, there have been different kinds of like bonus programs and performance related pay, uh, you know, employees for a while and actually still goes on in, in some companies now, although it's never proved to work will do uh, some kind of called stack ranking. So you take a team and you you rank everyone in, in terms of performance from from best to worst and then get rid of the, the, the worst performing person every six months or a year. Um, so that, there are sometimes these sort of uh, things that are going on that aren't really to do with technology, but more to do with, as you say, management style and um, different different sort of management ideas. Yeah, as the um, competition for talent intensifies, that's something that employers need to be very... Um, cognizant of that their their employees are, are in a happy environment um you mentioned earlier um a phrase uh, that people said their own discretion that they would work at their own discretion many workers feel that they have to respond quickly to clients demands um is that something uh, that uh, is is unique now where people are taking upon themselves maybe not necessarily being instructed by their bosses to constantly be on their emails, constantly be on their phones. Um, are we kind of bringing a lot of it on ourselves? I think maybe some of us are, um, but I don't think that can explain all of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there's a, a, a guy called Derek Thompson who work, who writes for the Atlantic magazine in the US who's coined this phrase called workism. So this is the idea that work has almost become a religion and a, a means of fulfillment and um, something that people do to the uh, exclusion of all else, um, driven by some sort of almost quasi-religious uh, feeling. Uh, so I, I'm sure that that's the case for some people. But, you know, the fact that we're seeing this across so many different occupations, mm. um, so many different income brackets makes me think that I, you know, I think more of this is coming from external pressures than from internal motivation, at least for the majority. 
In your examination of this, is there any regionality to it? Uh, is it is it um, something that's happening globally or are there particular regions that are particularly bad at creating this kind of culture? Yeah, that's a good question. We The best data we have comes from the UK because in the UK we have this very regular um, survey on um, the quality of work and how people experience work. So that's been is very there, is easy. That, is that government-sponsored um, research? It is, yeah, yeah. Um, it happens every five years. So we don't really have as good data for mm. other areas, but there are sort of similar things that happen at a European level, and it does look as if um, there's uh, the same trend exists in Europe, although I think not as strongly as it does in the UK. So from a business perspective, we're, we're talking about the employee a lot, but productivity is, is not a bad thing. So higher productivity from an individual's point of view should lead to better living standards. You work harder, you earn more money or you get more time off. Is that not happening? Yeah, I mean, this is the the rub really is that, as you say, if you if you if we're all working harder and therefore we're producing more and the economy is getting bigger, then we should all be richer, depending on how you know, how well we divide that cake. But certainly in the in the UK, as an example, productivity has been sort of notoriously poor now for at least a decade. Um, and it's something that economists have been puzzling over and um, coming up with all kinds of different explanations for. So it seems as if while we're working harder, we're not actually making ourselves any richer. And I would argue that actually we might be doing the opposite. Can't because you know, particularly in, in sort of creative work and work that requires sort of cognitive thinking it's very hard to to work well and productively when you're tired and stressed i think mm. that um issue of you know workers health and workers health and safety is it affecting people um within their work from a health perspective yeah so there's some new research out actually by some academics at um, sheffield university that finds a link between people who are working at very high intensity and people who are more likely to suffer stress, depression, burnout, um, you know, all phrases that we've kind of become quite familiar with during the pandemic. But actually, you know, you can see sort of even if you just look through official data on uh, work-related illnesses um, in the UK, you can see that stress, depression and anxiety has been on the rise and, and was on the rise before COVID. Um, so this is a this is a longer term trend. And, you know, to the extent that we can drill down into the causes for that, people people normally say they're stressed and depressed and anxious because of demands, excess demands at work, or uh, you know, having to do more than they feel physically capable of, having to meet deadlines that don't feel realistic, etc. That's not, obviously not the only cause, um, but it does seem as if it is having an impact on on people's mental health. And Sarah, what can be done? What are the conclusions? Are there any recommendations for how either employers or employees can tackle this subject themselves? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think employers are very cognizant of um, stress and burnout now, partly because they're they're struggling to hold on to people at the minute and struggling to attract people, as we know. So employers have, have been doing lots of things in terms of, like they call it, you know, wellness programs, um, meditation apps, you know, yoga at lunchtime, free fruit, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in my view, that's sort of treating the symptoms rather than the root cause. Um, So employers, I think, would do better to really sit down and figure out, you know, what are we doing that is actually putting our people under stress? And is there a way that we can do things smarter or better or um, reduce workload for people so that they don't feel so 
um, so exhausted. From a societal level, I mean, some of these factors, you know, around technology and the way it works, um, instant communications, instant messaging, emails, Slack channels, it's very hard to sort of undo all of that, I think. Um, but I think this does help to explain why more and more people are drawn to this idea of, of working a four-day week, that actually if we can't work less hard, maybe we can work less. You know, Maybe we can reduce our hours and we should go back to that place where we started um, actually, which was with Keynes and the idea that you know, we, can, we can just have more leisure time. And do you think, Sarah, that COVID-19 has um, accelerated all of this tension or do you think that this was going to evolve anyway? Yeah, as I say, I mean, these trends were well underway before COVID, but it's certainly the case that, you know, for some workers, particularly frontline workers um, who weren't able to work from home or or be furloughed, stress levels uh, went through the roof during the pandemic. And we have seen, you know, increased levels of of burnout among some workers. Um, And at the same time, you know, we've seen more people now decide to just opt out, um, retire early, for example, we've seen um, a real increase in people age 50 and over choosing to retire. Um, obviously, those are people who can afford to do so, which isn't everyone. But I think we are, I think, you know, COVID was probably a sort of a crystallization for some people of of what was going on here. And maybe, you know, for those people who were furloughed, it was a, a chance to step off the rat race for a minute and, and reflect on how much of it really um, makes sense for them. Well, Sarah, this is certainly a fascinating insight into the world of work from, I think, a a very different perspective to what we're used to hearing. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. Um, That was Sarah O'Connor from the Financial Times. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. The CEO of Ireland's biggest business group gives us his take on the economy and what business wants to see from government in the coming months to support the recovery. That's after the break. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. This week we saw Irish inflation reach 7.8, which is a 38-year high. We also heard from the European Central Bank that they're intending to raise interest rates by a quarter percent in July and maybe again in September it could be even more. There's no doubt about it. There's huge challenges ahead for business, for households and for government. And to discuss these issues and many more, I'm joined now in studio by CEO of IBEC, Danny McCoy. Danny, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. Now, Danny, when we last spoke, it was late last year. You were, in fact, my first guest on Taking Stock. Um, and at that time, you were relatively, op- relatively optimistic about the capacity of the economy to recover in a post-COVID environment. Now, we could not have known what would face the world then in terms of the war in Ukraine, the effect that that would have on the world energy supply, the economy, and how things would be affected domestically here just in terms of all of those issues and some of the more micro issues like housing and, and, you know. So I just wanted to get to start us off today, your assessment of the midterm view on the Irish economy and how you feel we are faring in all of those headwinds. Yeah, so listen, just to the point you made there at the start, uh, the recovery from COVID has been spectacular in Ireland. Um, So we have the economic growth numbers, which would appear that the economy in most metrics has grown by over 10%. We see income tax returns up by over 20%. All the tax take is up. I believe we're also dealing in a situation where cash in the informal economy is huge. So it's not even been caught by the official statistics. We have remarkably 
internationally a phenomenon. There are now 200,000 more people working in Ireland than there was at the start of COVID because the Irish economy grew through the years 20, 21, 22. So in that regard, there's huge pressures, there's a huge amount of income out there, huge amount of excess demand, and excess demand has three phenomena. The prices go up, you mentioned the inflation there, but inflation has been in the housing market, you know, the care market, the get access to public service market for quite some time now. Um, so we've got prices going up, we have rationing, you know, try get a taxi, uh, queue for lots of things. And also the third phenomenon is that you end up with a, a worse experience mm. because somebody mightn't be trained who's in the labour market or you just can't get the product that you like. It's not on the shelves or it takes time to get it. So that's where we are. You asked me, though, where we might be going. Um, I think we will still see that momentum in the Irish economy, um, not as high, but positive. But that's not a good thing because inflation is really damaging to the core of our society. Some people will do really well with higher interest rates Hmm. and inflation and the assets they have. And then others will have to be borrowing at higher interest costs and can't get housing or a crash or whatever. So potentially inflation is a real rip through a society in terms of social cohesion. Hmm. And I think globally this is a phenomenon. And you might say, you know, which beast is worse? Actually, slowing down the economy, possibly into recession, deliberately uh, bring a recession about, might be the way to cure the inflation problem. And you might say that's a very drastic thing to do for mere prices going up. But actually, the mere prices are, as I said, they're reallocating assets in arbitrary ways. You just could be lucky. I mean, the right place at the right time, you know, inherited a house from somebody uh, and everything else being the same between your friend next door you know same income same Mm. education same family formation by the end of a three or four year cycle of inflation the wealth between those two households will be so fundamentally different and one just had a good fortune yeah and somebody was making the point to me last week that leaving any money and deposit in a bank now doesn't make any sense whatsoever because as inflation grows the value of that um, so people will be looking around at what to do and, and what advice to get about um, where to put any deposits they might have saved up during COVID-19 and stuff can I just go back to those bigger um, figures that you mentioned earlier and the growth rates across a number of sectors taxation employment you can take your pick all of them combined kind of make Ireland an outlier a little bit in a European sense um, we saw the OECD revise growth rates this week what, what specifically are the things that could challenge our progress and halt that for us well I think the good news is that the fundamental investment that's occurred over the last number of years has changed Ireland into a high income high wealth country and I know people don't like to hear that because you know we know somebody who's struggling and of course in every society you're going to have a portion of society that will be struggling for economic reasons personal reasons but the reality is that more people in Ireland in this generation have more access to resources than any previous generation And that's why then it's ludicrous that we see the state respond by cutting the fares on the public transportation system or reducing the fees on the leave insert or starting to cut all these costs for every household. There are people who should get the resources, but not everybody. The problem is 
there's actually too much money in our society and it is trying to find expression in ways that are, are not sustainable. It's conspicuous consumption. The queues in the airport are not just a function of the supply capacity in the airport. It's yeah. the surge in demand. Yeah, um, but there is an issue though, Danny, like the the households who are uh, being affected by the cost of living crisis um, are not just low income families. There's a lot of middle class families who are equally affected by the rise in price of energy costs. And so do you not think it is you know, incumbent on a government when people see that the surplus is uh, the economy is doing well, that they should direct a lot of the revenue that's that's there in the coffers towards helping people. And surely that helps business as well, because ultimately they want to keep some money in the economy and businesses like yours, your members thriving. So if, if you take the proposition where we're disagreeing on, which is that there isn't too much money in the economy, my proposition is there is. Therefore, a government response that gives you more of the stuff isn't actually going to cure the problem that you can't actually get the tangible things you require, which is housing, care, security. We need more guards. Uh, we need more defence forces for the protection of the assets that we have uh, under our custodial duty to international investors. We've seen the society shrink in the public services, yet the expectations from a rich society is to have those public services personified. We can think of teachers and guards and so on. But actually for business, we need more planners. We need more regulators who make decisions faster so that people can be certain in their investment. So there's lots of things that we tangibly know are absent. What's not absent in the economy is money. Mm. So why would the government be the solution to give you more money when money isn't the problem? It's actually effective demand to be able to get the things you need. There's plenty of money out there. So then we just need to look at where that money is being directed towards. And as we, we both know, the estimates campaign will be well underway now in a lot of government departments. Where would your businesses like to see um, money directed when it, when we're talking about the supports that business need now to kind of get through the challenges themselves? So the first thing to say is that the government, which made a really good job during COVID and distribute money out to the places that are needed, both corporates and to people and to the health service, that money actually came from corporates. The cost of COVID is about 30 billion euros at this point. It, it works out roughly about 10 billion on the welfare pop type payments, 10 to corporates in terms of employer wage subsidy and tax warehousing and so on. And about 10 billion, give or take, in the testing, you know, tracing uh, vaccines. During those same years, corporate tax revenue was 28 billion. So in other words, Irish households didn't put their hand in their pocket at all. Uh, during the last two years to finance this COVID response. We actually got that from our business model. And that's a reality. But we, we live in a society where the, the tax pool is, is centralised and the state draws from it. So a bit unfair to kind of say corporation just paid for that. I mean... It's, it's the old adage of money from America. Corporation tax uh, is a function of what happens here and we're a trading nation. Um, this wasn't self-generated in terms of domestic activity in the main, those corporate tax returns. But you're right, money is fungible. But to the point about the estimates is that the private sector is way bigger than the government now in proportional terms than, say, in the last 10 years, and particularly the 25-year story about waiting for Budget Day. The government's going to be probably talking about two or three billion euros of a differential come mm. Budget Day, and we'll spend weeks and months talking about it. It is actually incidental. Um, what the government needs to do is to ensure that the money that's out there doesn't make things worse and it requires bravery 
but it also requires leadership to actually direct those resources into the things we need as a society. And, uh, you know, one of the things that people will find surprising when I say it next is the public sector has now got too small for the scale of our society. We've had one million extra workers in the private sector and the same amount of public sector. Yeah, I actually heard you talking about this before the pandemic even happened, that that we had to grow that. So, yeah, uh, and and it's not keeping pace with the private sector at all. Um, Just want to move along from here because I have a couple of things I want to get to with you. Um, The capital uh, project from the government's perspective is a huge part of kind of making that investment that will make Ireland better in the future. What's your view on the uh, National Development Plan now? Do you think that's going to move at the scale and pace that the government had anticipated? Uh, look, it's at the right size now. It's proportionately for the share of the cake. It's about 4%. Uh, we've been calling for that now about 10 years from IBEC. Unfortunately, it's now hitting an inflationary environment. And so, you know, what you really want is the hospital, you know, not the notion of it. Mm. Um, and so, unfortunately... But has, has all the inflation supply chain issue, has that slowed everything down? It will have done. Mm. And uh, it, the government is also, you know, not a monopolist here. Uh, it's got to compete with industry for that scarce resource that is the construction worker and the construction firm. So everything is going to cost more. The unfortunate thing is people might stop doing stuff because of the uncertainty of not being able to price. You know, if you fix a price and inflation takes off, the business can't afford the loss. They'll stop doing the project. Yeah, and so the government might have to retender on some of those projects and start all over again. Danny, can I just turn to some comments you made at a recent Climate Action Summit because it did cause a bit of controversy at the time. You called for a greater collaboration and shared understanding amongst stakeholders in addressing the climate challenge. What, what were you getting at there? Yeah, so look, uh, the climate is actually uh, a physical um Science, in other words, the physics and the chemistry and biology, the things that I left behind a long time ago in school, needs to be understood to know what's happening in not just climate change, but just in terms of environmental degradation more fundamentally. And so the scientists, you know, are in pursuit of that truth. But we also live in societies. And so both communities, the social sciences, need to know about the physical sciences, to know about the laws of thermodynamics. Yeah, so what are, what are you saying? That, the and that people are making decisions who don't understand the science or that people are ignoring the science? No, what I said is that the science community needs to be sensitive to where the information they give will land if they expect the response from society that they anticipated. Now, that's a fancy way of saying last year, everybody was up for COP26. We're running out of time. We're going to be carbon neutral as fast as possible. Fossil fuels are gone from our thought process and equation. And if you had shares in a fossil fuel company, sell them because they're dinosaurs, they're gone. Roll on one year. Fossil fuel companies have never been richer because the demand for fossil fuels and where you get them from is now critical given we've stopped trading with Russia in the main. You can't be a scientist and not think that what you're talking about will have feedback loops from society. Mm. My point was both communities need to be sensitive to each other's discipline because nobody has an absolute truth there. Yeah, and I think the last year has certainly shown those um, those realities uh, w- when it comes to energy for sure. Finally, just wanted to get your views on Brexit um, and what's happening around the Northern Ireland Protocol um, with the British government uh, abandoning the, the legislation. How important would this or could this be for uh, businesses here in the Republic of Ireland? Look, it's 
any uncertainty is really bad because you don't know when you're making contracts you'd be able to deliver because the border might be here, there or somewhere else, you know. So clarity is always uh, something that business will require. And the expectation that sovereign governments, when they make a deal, stick to it. Um, so in that regard, what Britain is doing right now is very disconcerting for investment and for stability on both islands. And I also think one of my biggest fears is that the uh, economy in Britain has already gone into recession. It is much more severe in terms of living standards than we've been talking about here. Mm. And social unrest, I think, is a real proposition in the UK. And the manifestations of that were just too close and too much of a Siamese twin Mm. not to be impacted by it. So stabilising Britain is important. Yeah, very interesting perspective. Earlier you spoke of the corporations and the American corporations in particular, very important to our economy. Uh, small but maybe important thing happened during the week where Dublin Airport closed its fast track uh, facility for those private planes and introduced uh, you know, the tiered travel um, alternatives. Uh, do you think that that type of thing is important for Ireland's image in the world or... Is it just too small to affect business relationships that really matter to us a lot in terms of corporation tax take? Uh, I know it's a token thing that, you know, people see elites and so on, but actually it's cut off your nose to spite your face. Uh, Anything that makes access into a country easy is an important criteria for coming to visit to make an investment or to visit the investment you've already made. If you expect people to queue up uh, behind the holidaymaker for the summer, they just won't do that trip. And it may not appear as a loss to Ireland in the very short term, but cumulatively, we're actually closing ourselves down for the sake of something that's actually quite tokenism. And it's part of this cancel culture, if you like. You know, you might feel good about it in the moment, but it's actually long term costs would be much more significant than the short-term benefit of feeling good about it. Well, it's not something that's going to affect me anyway. I'll still be stuck in a queue. But um, there's much bargaining to be done in the months ahead. Danny, I hope you'll join us again before Budget 2023 for now. Thank you very much for coming into us today. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. If you'd like to contact the programme, you can get in touch by emailing us on takingstock at newstalk.com. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Bernard Marr about his latest business book, which just won Business Book of the Year. It's called The 25 Trends That Are Redefining Organisations. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to today's guests and to Taking Stock producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardozo on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record and they'll be taking a look at all of your Sunday newspapers. But for me, that's Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.